Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Sam Apple. Sam is the author of Ravenous, Otto Warburg, The Nazis, and The Search for the Cancer Diet Connection. His book, published in May 2021, explores the fascinating life story of Otto Warburg, a Nobel Prize winning scientist who, despite being both Jewish and gay, survived Nazi Germany because of his valuable research into cellular metabolism and cancer. He joins us today for a discussion of his book and the connection between diet and cancer. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So to begin with, could you get us, give us a little bit of a background about the main character of your book, uh, Otto Warburg, and his fascinating life story? 
Sure. Uh, Otto Warburg was uh, born in Germany in the late 19th century, and uh, his father was a very well-known physicist, Emil Warburg. And so Otto Warburg grew up in a house that was filled with some of the greatest scientists in history. Um, Einstein was a close friend of the family, Max Planck, um, Emil Fischer, many, many other luminaries of German science, Fritz Haber, were regulars in his childhood home. So he grows up in this world expecting be a great scientist and sort of assuming that he'll win a Nobel Prize one day after the Nobel Prizes are introduced, uh, but not sure entirely what field he wants to go into. But he eventually decides that he wants to go into biology or to move away from the physics of his father and to, to look at biology through the lens of physics, through the lens of energy. And, and so goes on to uh, make this remarkable discovery about cancer in, in 1923. So he, he was truly brilliant, but also uniquely arrogant. Uh, he was famous among scientists from a relatively young age for believing he was a genius and, and sort of telling everybody that. And, um, you know, he, he was the unusual narcissist who sort of had evidence to support his narcissism. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think uh, his his work on cancer metabolism is truly fascinating and I think enormously important. Um, he's best known for discussing the Warburg effect. What is the Warburg effect? Could you give us uh, your kind of summary of from having studied him so extensively? Sure. So, you know, Warburg's most famous discovery, at least in the context of cancer, was that uh, cancer cells seem to take up nutrients and to fuel their growth in a, in a very unusual way, uh, whereas most cells will take up the glucose, the blood sugar, and burn it in our mitochondria. These are you know, famously called the power stations of our cells, and they basically react the, the glucose with, with oxygen. Cancer cells will instead take most of that, that glucose, that energy from our cells, and ferment it, uh, a process that doesn't rely on oxygen. Uh, they basically split the, the glucose in two and, and turn it into lactic acid. It's the same process that uh, microorganisms use when you know making alcohol in the case of alcoholic fermentation or lactic acid you know, in the case of organisms that, that allow us to have yogurt and cheeses. So it was a strange thing that uh, cancer cells were behaving in this way because it's, it's a very inefficient way to make energy. And cancer cells, you would think, would need more energy than other cells because, you know, they're, they're growing. So it was a strange thing to discover. And Warburg, you know, was trying to figure out why it happened and what it meant and became convinced that this unusual process uh, of eating, this fermentation, was this, the core to the cancer problem. And that if we could solve this problem, we'd be able to cure cancer. And it's called the Warburg effect because a cell will, and typically you would expect a cell only to turn to fermentation if there's no oxygen around. And it's sort of a backup engine, it's desperation, or maybe there's oxygen, but there's not enough oxygen to, to process all the fuel that's coming in. So that's actually what happens when we exercise intensely and uh, you know we're sprinting or doing intense exercise, and we can't keep up with the dem demand, and we start to to turn to fermentation, and that process actually leads to us uh, getting sore. But in that case, it's sort of a crisis for the cell. But cancer cells have all this oxygen, and they still prefer fermentation. So that's what the Warburg effect is. It's turning to this backup engine even when we have oxygen available. 
And so what is the significance of the Warburg effect of this um, metabolism process for cancer cells? Uh, why is that important and interesting? And why would he win a Nobel Prize for it? Uh, sure. Well, he actually, he deserved a Nobel Prize for it. And he almost won the Nobel Prize for it. But in the end, they gave him the Nobel Prize for a different discovery, not for this one. But, um, you know, it, it was really important because it seemed to be happening, you know, in, in every cancer that, that Warburg studied. In the end, people, experts now say it's probably about 70% of cancers. But it's a very fundamental shift. Um, you know, Warburg thought it was the most fundamental distinction between a normal cell and a cancer cell. And when you think about, you know, the great challenge of attacking cancer is finding out what makes a cancer cell unique, because, you know, it's easy to kill cells. The problem is when you try to kill cancer cells, you kill all the other cells. So it looked like it might create a vulnerability in the context of treatment. That was very exciting. But my interest ultimately, you know, sort of progressed to the point where what, what I thought was most important about it is, is what it possibly means for cancer prevention. Is there something about the way we eat and the way we live that drives this shift to a different style of eating? Is there a relationship between our, our diets, the way we eat and the way a cancer cell eats? And I think the evidence suggests that there is. And so that's ultimately the most important takeaway. Uh-huh. And what is that evidence and what is the implication of it? Uh, I, I think listeners are not going to be surprised. Uh, they know me and they know my agenda. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the it's it's been very clear, you know, for a long time that these cancer cells are taking up more glucose than, than an ordinary cell. And the question is, you know, why they're doing that? What drives that shift? So Warburg's hypothesis, Warburg's experiments were, were deemed to be correct, but his hypothesis for why it happens was not always deemed to be correct. And many people think it's wrong. And I concluded that it's probably largely off target in, in most cancers, but Warburg thought it happened because the mitochondria, the power stations are ultimately dysfunctional. They can't process the glucose. And so the cell shifts to this backup engine uh, out of desperation. That may be true in some cancers and, and in actually in some other diseases, but uh, it seems that cancer cells can continue to function properly with respect to their mitochondria in, in most respects. So if they're not doing it because they have a defect in the mitochondria, why are they doing it? You know, one hypothesis that's commonly thought about is it's just related to how much glucose in your blood. If you eat a lot of carbohydrates, there's going to be more access to carbohydrates to the glucose for the cancer cells, and that will lead to more glucose processing and, and more cancer. And I, I think that that's an incomplete explanation as well. Uh, you know, it is certainly part of the story, but, you know, we, we all have glucose running through our blood all the time. You know, you, you die very quickly if you didn't. So if it was just as simple as the availability of glucose, you wouldn't think that it would make the difference. So the hypothesis that, that really intrigues me most is you know, what I call the insulin hypothesis, that uh, the central problem is that for many of these cancers, particularly obesity-linked cancers, which is a list of 13 and growing, and these are often the most deadly cancers, what we find is that there's a strong correlation between elevated glucose and cancer rates. And, and so that's just at the level of, you know, of correlation. But we also find at the, uh, you know, at the level of the 
biochemistry is that these cancer cells are, are covered in insulin receptors and the most common mutations are actually in these pathways that respond to insulin. So it really combines the sort of uh, epidemiology and the biochemical understanding. And, and the hypothesis that I lean towards is that we eat these diets that are high in, in refined grains and sugar in particular, and that causes a problem of fat buildup around our internal organs and insulin resistance. Then we have this elevated insulin and that elevated insulin 24 hours a day, you know, 50 times the insulin of a normal healthy person. I shouldn't say normal because so many of us have this, but that elevated insulin, it, it seems to function much like a growth factor, giving these incipient cancer cells the signal to stay alive, the signal to grow. And, you know, once they develop a mutation that really allows them to take advantage of that situation, you know, they're off and running. And, and so I, I think that's really the, the heart of the cancer diet story. Mm -hmm. So let me just uh, uh, repeat this because I think it's a very important distinction and it's not very easy to grasp. So the Warburg effect, you argue, is directionally correct and in terms of its conclusions, it is correct, but it doesn't tell us the full story because it misses the insulin resistance part of the story, right? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. I would say that, um, you know, that the Warburg effect as a, you know, molecular phenomenon is correct. Warburg accurately described what cancer cells do. They take up all this glucose and they ferment it. And the question, and I think most people would also agree that that's central to cancer, but the debate is about you know, why it happens. And so to be clear, that idea is that uh, they thrive on glucose input and they thrive in um, the, the, their metabolism happens in an anaerobic way, right? Right. They have, they have oxygen. They could do it aerobically in theory, but they prefer to do it anaerobically or, or they, they still use oxygen in many cases, but they also crank up. So there's sort of two sets of questions that relate to this. One question, which we maybe will also talk about, is why cancer cells do this? What's the advantage for the cancer cell? But, you know, but in terms of preventing cancer, the question I'm most interested in is what causes the switch? 
And, you know, why is that happening? You know, it could be a defect in the mitochondria and the power stations that Warburg says. It could have nothing to do with diet or lifestyle. It could just be unlucky mutations that allow a cancer cell to take advantage of, of glucose or insulin. You know, I, I think a lot of cancer scientists today would, you know, would say that, or to the extent that they think about it all, they'd say, yeah, you know, it's just bad luck, you get a mutation. Or it could be that it's not just unlucky mutations, but something about the way we eat is actually driving the process forward, causing more glucose to come into our cells, maybe driving some of the mutations or maybe just giving a cell that would otherwise die a chance to take advantage of this extra insulin and glucose. But I think it's very clear that something about our lifestyle is causing this. And that really isn't controversial. You know, almost every cancer expert, I, I think, agrees that uh, many, a high percentage of our cancers are caused by the way we live and eat. You know, the range is usually anywhere from 40, uh, a lot of people say 70%, some say 90%. So that's, that's been the, the mystery for really a century and a half is what it is that's causing it. You know, and the standard answer might be, well, it's, it's many things. It's smoking, of course, and, and the environment, uh, you know, the sun exposure and sexually transmitted diseases, and poor diet, as you know, the, the term is often multifactorial. And that's, of course, true. But I, I think we've somehow in the midst of all this complicating factors sort of overlooked something like the big, you know, the quote unquote elephant in the room, like this big thing that is staring at us and that a lot of people amazingly don't know about have never heard about don't think of sugar as potentially carcinogenic, whereas, you know, I think it's maybe the greatest threat of all in terms of what we can prevent. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. But uh, just to dig more into the uh, complexity of this question. So for Warburg, he did not believe in the kind of genetic explanations. For him, it was more environmental, the, what, what was driving this, or it was dietary. What do you think uh, what, were his? The molecular biology and the you know sort of genetic understanding of cancer was just emerging at the end of his life. He died in 1970. But he saw it coming and, and was dismissive of it because he thought, you know, sort of downstream of the fundamental thing. He thought the, the problem clearly had to arise in, in the mitochondria, what he called the grana. You know, the, he was a very aristocratic person. You know, he thought of himself as an aristocrat. He thought that higher forms of life use oxygen to create their energy and the cancer cell was reverting to this ancient metabolism as he, as he viewed it. And uh, it was a lower form of life. He said, uh, one of his quotes I'm paraphrasing is that in, in the case of cancer, oxygen is dethroned or respiration is dethroned. You know, that's how he thought of it. So he thought something had to be going wrong. Some, you know, and he discovered, you know, he won the Nobel prize in 1931 for, sort of elucidating the key step in respiration, how a cell breathes, how you know glucose is broken down and the electrons are passed along to oxygen. So he thought something in that process broke down and caused cancer by forcing the cell to shift to this primitive metabolism. And, and I remember in your book, you mentioned that uh, he likened uh, cancer metabolism to uh, sewer rats because the sewer rats live in places where oxygen isn't very available. And so they learn to, uh, or they have to adapt by uh, conducting metabolism with little oxygen. And somehow cancer is like that, right? Yeah, I, I've forgotten that, that specific line, but that does, <laughs> it does sound like Warburg. And uh, there, are, there are actually these uh, mole rats that live you know, underground and don't have as much 
access to oxygen and, and they do seem to uh you know rely on on fructose uh, as a way to to fuel some of their this warburg metabolism as i would call it so there are some really you know fascinating elements here into how sugar can drive this process yeah and i think uh, i i think it's absolutely tragic and at the same time hilarious that uh, scientists will with a serious uh, intent and with a serious look on their face tell you that it is all genetic when you know 200 years ago cancer prevalence rates were nowhere near as high as they are now and somehow now they um, explode you know we're everybody alive today had an ancestor who was alive 200 years ago and yet 200 years ago very few of us uh, very few of our ancestors had cancer so the genes somehow weren't working then to give us cancer but now today um, all these genes somehow decided to get activated and I, I find it absurd that we would not look even if you want to say that there is a genetic component to it the question is why do these genetic um, uh, you know mutations or whatever it is why do they show up now and not previously. Clearly, it's something in the way that we live, in the way that we eat, in the air that we breathe. You could make any of these explanations that are, you need to find something that's here now, but that wasn't around 200 years ago. And I think that's uh, that's a very basic logic, which is, you know, you, <laughs> from my experience with education, um, you know, you have to get uh, very highly credentialed in order to start being able to confidently dismiss the obvious and to confidently assert the uh, absurd, which is, you know, oh, it's just your genetics, you know, uh, let alone the fact that 200 years ago, none of your ancestors had heard about cancer, maybe. But no, 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 it's your genetics. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I find it mind baffling. And I tried to, to anticipate the arguments and the counterpoints. I didn't really need to anticipate them. I found them in the literature. So I, I tried to take them on one by one. You know, sometimes most people just say it's genetic and just don't even really think about it. And, and it's confusing because these same people will say, well, yeah, of course there are environmental factors, but then they don't go any further. But if you, you look at the standard arguments, they'll say, well, people didn't used to live as long and that's why they didn't get cancer. So you show them all that evidence and they say, well, they didn't, they didn't have the same diagnostic techniques. And then you show how even after all the diagnostic techniques came along, the cancer rate continue, continued to grow and grow. And there's, you know, it's very easy to show. And it's been clear for over a century that we've had this huge growth, you know, that took started in the, in the late 19th century in cancer. And yet, you know, for reasons I don't fully understand, there's, you know, many medical professionals, certainly not all, but many to sort of have this natural aversion to this story that, it, it's sort of unpleasant to think about and we can't do anything about it perhaps. So they just, you know, throw up their hands and say, ah, oh, people, are, people are just living longer. But, you know, if you just spend 20 minutes doing research, you can see that that can't, that can't explain it away. You know, so the other explanation is just, well, okay, you're right, but the, it could be a hundred different things, you know, but the way we live now is so different from the way people lived a long ago, then how can you pinpoint it to this one thing? Yeah, so let's just throw up our hands and, you know, do radiation therapy and not try and figure out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, it is it is a hard problem, you know, because so many of these things, you know, the best way to prove that it's sugar or high insulin would be, you know, to do the kind of study we really can't do, which would be, you know, a randomized controlled experiment where we gave people tons of sugar over, over decades. But, you know, short of that, we just have a remarkable amount of, of evidence. And, uh, you know, 
the pattern's been cleared for so long. And it's really not just cancer. I honestly could have could have written the same book in a, in a sense about you know diabetes and cardiovascular disease, but they all start trending together. And it always happens after sugar comes into the diet. When I say sugar, I mean sucrose, not glucose, but the sweet white stuff, you know, that's always a key triggering event. And, uh, you know, with other refined carbs as well. And, you know, they're, they're really, <laughs> they're really no exceptions. As soon as the, the Western lifestyle is adopted, you know, these diseases start to arise. And, um, you know, interestingly, a lot of these societies that were largely, you know, cancer free, not entirely, but largely cancer free in the 19th century, you'd have these doctors that would come and, and stay with them for decades. And, you know, when they'd arrived, they would have a really hard time finding any cases of cancer. And by the time they left and these local populations had been eating sugar for, you know, a couple of decades, sure enough, cancers would start to arise. So you could like see it in real time at the time. You wouldn't blame these populations for blaming the doctor for the cancer. And <laughs> like, I mean, it's, uh, it, it would definitely be more rigorous and more scientific than blaming their genetics because the genetics were fine before the doctors showed up. Uh, but I mean, obviously the doctor showed up at the same time that the sugar showed up. I think one of my favorite books is uh, Western Prices, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And it shows exactly what you did. And I think what's really unique about that book is and about Western Prices work is that, you know, he did this at a time he traveled around the world at a time when uh, airplanes were just invented. And he went to all those places that were completely isolated or very isolated before that they didn't trade with the rest of the world. They were very far apart from modern industrial civilization. And so they, you know, he, he arrived at the time where the airplanes could uh, carry him there, but there were no train tracks and there were no ships that were used to bring in food to these populations. So he saw people at the beginning of the 20th century that were still insulated from all of our modern, uh, highly processed industrial foods, particularly flour and sugar, the two uh, main culprits in his uh, explanation. And... Uh, and, and he would examine populations from all over the world. You know, it would be, say, uh, Inuits in Alaska and northern Canada. And he'd look at the population of Inuits that was uh, close to a white settlement. So they traded with the white Europeans. And then the other population, which was a couple of hundred miles away, you know, genetically very similar, but they were isolated. They weren't trading with the white settlers. And so they didn't eat sugar and flour. And uh, he would go and he would examine their teeth and he would take pictures and he took samples of the food that they ate and he sent them back to his laboratory in Ohio. He examined the food content. And I think that's the closest thing that we could get to a randomized control trial because uh, you were doing the same thing with Pacific Islanders, with Inuits, with uh, Maasai in the center of Africa, basically the full diversity of humanity. Uh, he looked in each case, he would find the population that was isolated, that was eating its traditional food that they'd been eating for centuries or millennia versus the population that was integrated into world trade and eating modern sugar and modern flour. And in all cases, he would just find extremely stark uh, evidence. And it's just, uh, you know, the, the most visually shocking part of the book is the pictures of the jaws and the teeth. And he would show you how, you know, the populations that had the sugar and the flour would have the problems with their teeth, whereas the other population would have fine teeth. And it wasn't just, and, and then, of course, that helps you understand the importance of teeth to health, because uh, he shows how 
the health of the teeth was a reflection of the health of the total body. So all these diseases were beginning to show up as soon as people's teeth were beginning to rot. And it's uh, because, you know, what ruins your teeth will also ruin the rest of your body. They're just another organ of your body. And I think it's extremely telling. It's extremely compelling as well. But again, it's something that uh, modern scientists choose to keep ignoring. What are your thoughts on why that is the case? Yeah, it, it, it's very, very hard to understand. You know, I, I thought a lot about it and I, I don't know that I have any, you know, more insights on, on that particular part of the story than, than anybody else. But, you know, one, one thing that was, you know, very revealing to me was, you know, I was looking at the smoking cancer connection, you know, beginning to be discovered in the, you know, initially in the 1930s and then the sort of more convincing studies in the 1950s. And, you know, one of the scientists who first sort of put the pieces together was the epidemiologist Richard Dahl, the famous British epidemiologist. And even when he was starting to collect his data and seeing that tobacco and smoking was a big part of the, the lung cancer problem, he could hardly believe it. He didn't want to believe it. He was looking for other hypotheses because it just seemed such a natural part of daily life smoking everybody smoked is what you did to relax and you know how could this be truly the cause of this horrible epidemic of lung cancer you know so i think there's something analogous with sugar and again i always want to distinguish between sugar and blood sugar and, and when i say sugar i mean the, the sweet white stuff like it's just you know we serve it at every celebration after every meal it's just part of who we are like how could this thing that that's so much a part of our life actually be you know, quote unquote, secretly poisoning us or secretly driving these horrible epidemics. It just it just seems too awful to believe or too too painful to believe. So I think we just, you know, kind of shrug. And, you know, even to this day, we have hospitals full of vending machines, full of sugar. You know, it's just complete uh, inability to absorb this. And it is unpleasant to absorb. And I, I struggle with it, too. And my kids still eat sugar and I, I fight with them and it it's hard. So I get that it's hard, but we just have to we just have to embrace it. Yeah, I think a big part of this is just simply junkies. Like, you know, if you try to confront an alcoholic and tell them, hey, you know, your alcohol is ruining your life or your drug addiction is ruining your, ruining your life, whatever drug it is, it's very difficult to get an addict to objectively assess their addiction. It's just they're emotionally geared in a way that wants to believe that this drug is harmless. It's good for me. It helps me socialize. It um, helps me make friends. It helps me wind down. They're always trying to focus on the good parts of it. And it's just such a strong bias, which, you know, everybody realizes that, you know, uh, alcoholics would have that. But it's only when you quit sugar that you realize just how much more ingrained in people the sugar addiction is and i I, i've personally i've been on a carnivore diet for seven years so i've had zero sugar for seven years and before that for about four years i was on a low carb diet so i was having less and less sugar and it's just been absolutely shocking for me how difficult it is for people to accept that i'm just not eating this stuff and you know i'm not i'm not out there trying to tell people not to eat it simply trying to convince them to just leave me alone and stop trying to stuff their white poison in my mouth is an extremely hard battle to win. You know, I remember when I was uh, working at a university and there'd be, you know, everybody starts liking everybody else because it's a, it's a great excuse to have a sugar hit during the middle of the workday. Uh, so everybody wants to have uh, birthday celebrations and then they bring this massive sugar bomb. 
And I don't want to be antisocial, so I do want to join, but I also don't want to ruin my day. And by getting a big giant <laughs> sugar hit in the middle of the day, I still want to work. I still want to teach. I want to focus. I don't want to have a sugar crash on my hand and I don't want to have to spend the rest of the day uh, doing sugar in order to keep my energy levels up. So, you know, I go to the birthday and I just, you know, happy birthday. And, uh, I'm nice, but no, thank you. I'm not going to have the cake. And then that becomes the center of attention of everybody every time. Like, how can you not have the cake? Why wouldn't you have the cake? What's wrong with cake? Everybody wants to just really fight with the idea that you might reject cake. You know, I'm not trying to tell them to stop eating it. I'm just trying to tell them, no, thank you. I don't want to have it. And there's such a strong desire amongst people to uh, <laughs> want to convince you that, no, it's good. It's normal. You're just being ridiculous. Is something wrong with you? This is the fa my favorite. Oh, is something wrong with you? Like you must have some kind of massively debilitating disease <laughs> that prevents you from engaging in this very harmless uh, activity. And the answer is always, no, nothing is wrong with me. I just don't like the way that sugar affects my body. I've tried living with sugar. I spent 30 years of my life being a massive sugar addict. I've tried every single sugar thing that is in your supermarket. I've, you know, I, I spent long periods of my life where I was heavily addicted to soda and candy and you know i was a connoisseur of all these candies that you find in your supermarket i've tried them all but i've also tried going without them and i found life without them to be much better than anything that they can offer it's much more delicious having spent a month with zero sugar feels better than anything that you could get from the supermarket and people just get really, really angry when you tell them that because, you know, they're addicted to it. And no, it's clearly something that's wrong with you. I think that's a big part of it. It's just addicts. We live in a world in which this has been normalized. And it's, um, you know, I, 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 I mean, if you've ever been sober around drunk people, you know how annoying it is. And I think... <laughs> Those of us who don't do sugar, this is what it's like every day. I mean, all, all society is just sugar addicts running around from one excuse to indulge to another. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think that's right. My, when my kids were, you know, my kids sort of understand more now that they were younger, it would drive them crazy to the point where they like, try to shove a cupcake in my mouth <laughs> celebration. Like, all right, all right, I'll, I'll just have one just to, to quiet them down. But I don't know why it, it drives people crazy. But you know, but interestingly, you know, I do think it's an addiction, but the way I think of the addiction is really that we're all insulin. I say we, because I, I was a part of this too. I was addicted like you, you know, I was eating sugar all the time. I used to, at one point, I remember like in my early twenties, I didn't have much money. I was like carrying, a, carrying around a bag of white bread and just like taking out slices. <laughs> like that was my diet. So, um, you know, I was a part of it too. And I, I remember going to the doctor, I had elevated triglycerides. I had no idea what that meant, you know, so I was clearly developing insulin resistance, but you know, what I think is going on, you know, most cases we're addicted because when you have this elevated, you know, eat the sugar, you get this elevated insulin and then it tells your, your adipose tissue, you know, to store the nutrients. So, you're taking in all this food, but it's getting locked away in your cells and, and you're hungry all the time. So, you know, yeah. it's a process that's driving hunger. So you, you just, you're hungry for the exact foods that you don't want to eat. Yeah. And I think also it's just understanding the psychology of the addiction is that at any point in time, you're either in the high where you've just enjoyed your sugar and you love it and you feel like sugar is the most amazing thing in life. And 
therefore any anybody saying something bad about sugar is just a heretic that needs to be lynched or you're withdrawing from sugar you know the high is rubbed off and now you're withdrawing and you're really craving your sugar and anybody who's trying to tell you that sugar is bad for you is trying to get in the way of your next hit and you don't want to be standing in the way of an addict and their hit and so at all points in time you're dealing with somebody who's entire psychology is fixated around the drug and this is this is what drugs do to you like it's you're you're incapable of functioning without it and your whole life begins to revolve around it and i think um you know it's uh, this is this is not controversial thing to say about uh people things that people understand as drugs like alcohol or hard drugs but it's exactly applicable to sugar with the difference being that sugar is completely normalized in society and that it's just it's it, it's perfectly normal for people to say oh i'm craving something sweet or i'm feeling uh, I, I have an energy crash i'm gonna go grab a donut or i'm gonna go grab uh, um you know a sugary drink or something like that it's just been normalized as a normal part of life yeah so if you have your energy levels down then just grab something sugary and you'll be all right yeah it's uh, it's tragic yeah, you know, the, the best counter argument that I, I've come across, which, you know, you've probably heard as well, some people will just say, you know what, I think you're right, but my life just would not be as good without sugar. You know, I, I'm willing to take these risks because it adds so much pleasure and fun and daily satisfaction. And you know, maybe that's true for some people, but it just seems hard to believe that given, you know, the severity of the consequences and the increased risk for so many diseases that, that it could be worth it. But uh, to me, that that's the one argument that I have to throw up my hands at. Like, it really is worth it, you know. That I'm fine, but know what the consequences are. I'd be I'd be willing to entertain that argument if it comes from somebody who has tried uh, going clean for a couple of months, and then um, gotten back and decided, no, you know what, the daily roller coaster of sugar addiction is more fun than uh, being clean and i and i'd say you know to go clean it's not just a day without sugar because if you do it for a day you're just going to be withdrawing and it's going to be hell and that's generally the kind of answer that you get it's like yeah i tried to go without sugar for a couple of days i was miserable i could not live without sugar well yeah obviously if you're addicted to something and you're withdrawing from it you're going to be miserable but on the other side of that misery you know once you've gone through the withdrawal um i mean I, I find it a much, 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 much better way of living. And I think it, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do, but I think it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, before you decide, yeah, I'm willing to risk all of these horrific diseases and illnesses, see what life would be like without yeah. daily engaging in all of that. Yeah. You know, that raises a, another question is, you know, what's the difference between, you know, someone like me or you and, and somebody who sees all the same evidence and decides that it's not worth it? Like what what made it click for us? Because we could reproduce that, you know, and I don't know what it is. I, I, my best guess is that I'm just more neurotic than the average person. And so, you know, I started to think about the consequences more and that spurred me into action. But I can't figure out like what it is that makes some people get it and others don't because the evidence is the same. I mean, in my case, it was uh, getting to a point where I became overweight. I was insulin resistant and um, I started really just uh, uh, feeling like crap every day. And then... Uh, 
for me, it was like the addiction, <laughs> the addiction of reducing the amount of sugar became the, the addiction that I got into. So I, I started off by first, you know, once I first became aware of this, I stopped drinking uh, carbonated beverages that were full of sugar and I stopped eating excess bread. Like I just became conscious of those two things. As soon as I removed those two things from my diet, I immediately felt so much better. And it's just the very low hanging fruit, you know, just don't drink sugary um, Pepsi and cola or whatever. And don't eat excess bread. You know, if you're going to have a sandwich, have a sandwich with a little less bread than you usually do. And that immediately made a huge difference in my health. And so then it became like an addiction. Like, well, what else can I do to make my <laughs> health better? And then I just kept on removing more and more things. And now I'm left with only red meat and water. And I've uh, been on it for seven years. And I've seen no reason to change. You know, everybody gets really worked up when I tell them I eat like this. But uh, um, nobody has shown me any evidence for uh, why I need to introduce anything from plants into my food. And I've, uh, you know, every time I try, I just, uh, I, I feel much worse. Yeah. So you're only red meat and water. You're all the way there. Yep. Seven years now. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wet, wet meat. <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking over the interview. <laughs> no, please. You, you Mostly beef, um, sometimes lamb. When I'm in the Middle East, I eat a lot more lamb than here, but uh, it's mostly beef. I think having spent some more time in the Middle East now, I think I wouldn't be able to do it purely on lamb. I think I still need beef. So uh, I could do it purely on uh, beef. Um, and I eat mostly uh, flesh, you know, muscle meat, but I also eat a lot of organ meat. I love organ meat and I've always wanted it. I've always loved it. Even when I used to eat garbage, I always used to like organ meat because I lived in Lebanon and in Lebanon, they're very good at preparing it. So I still eat a lot of organ meats, but uh, I don't really give it much thought in terms of, this is the kind of really amazing thing about it for me is that there I don't have to count anything. When I'm hungry, I eat fatty red meat until I'm not hungry anymore. Yeah. And if I'm thirsty, I drink water until I'm not thirsty anymore. And I salt to taste. And that's it. All right. Well, you're, you're inspiring me. I, I still got a way to go. I, I still have my keto ice cream sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's much harder. Like when you're, uh, I remember this phase when, you know, you, when I still had a little bit of uh, plant food here and there, it's just, uh, you, you're still getting into the sugar roller coaster and it still preoccupies your mind and you're all constantly calculating uh, how much sugar can I have today? And can I try this recipe? Should I try that recipe? And there's always that temptation because, you know, you're, yeah, you're doing a lot less of the drug, but you're still doing the drug. And if, if you just go zero, uh, it's it's much easier. I think it was uh, a few weeks ago, I had Dr. Benjamin Bickman on the podcast. And, uh, you know, he's also on the same page as you saying that it's insulin resistance. And he said St. Augustine, uh, he quoted St. Augustine, who said abstinence is much easier than, uh, I forget the exact quote, but, you know, completely abstaining is easier than doing things in moderation. Because moderation uh, in an addictive thing is just constantly getting you to desire more and more of it. So you need a lot more willpower to manage to stay on this narrow, straight path when you're diverting a little bit and having to come back whereas if you just stay on it it just gets easier yeah no no it makes sense but you know i guess you know in relation to what we were talking about before you know people it did click as far as smoking like you know people the medical world eventually did accept that 
you know, smoking causes lung cancer, you know, so it seems like, you know, there has to be a model for, for getting this message through that, that's based on that. And, you know, that's another thing I've tried to figure out is, you know, it's how you make that leap. And, you know, part of the problem is that it's just a simpler problem in terms of the epidemiology with smoking, you know, very easy to see who smoked and who didn't smoke. Whereas with diet, you know, you have all these complicating factors, nobody eats only sugar. So, you know, you just, harder to present the evidence in a way that people will accept and that's you know that's why partially why i focus on the insulin because the picture is you know much more clear and then you just have to ask the secondary question is okay if insulin is really so carcinogenic at at high levels every day then the question just comes down to what causes the insulin resistance and that's where the, the sugar connection is is so clear and strong yeah i think the case is extremely compelling and uh, you know it's and it's, it's it's not just the cancer it's just the diabetes and obesity and all kinds of other illnesses uh, and and in the episode with dr bickman we extensively discussed all the different uh, ways in which um, insulin resistance is implicated in so many of modern diseases what really boggles my mind and i said this to dr bickman is just it's the extremely counterproductive way of thinking of not going for the low hanging fruit you know when you've got so much evidence pointing toward a single culprit, this is what any doctor should be saying. You know, when the kid walks into your uh, clinic and they eat candy, you know, your job as a doctor is to be the party pooper and tell him stop eating candy. And uh, it's just, it's amazing that people don't go for that low hanging fruit. And instead they prefer to overcomplicate things to look for extremely elaborate explanations to look for extremely really silly rationalization well maybe it's genetics well maybe we need another 30 million dollar grant to go to this university department to look at what is it about which gene is it that causes this and that or you know just have less candy you know <laughs> it's, it sounds like such an obviously easier solution you know, the, the real problem, I, I've thought about this when thinking about Dr. Beekman, and, you know, the problem is that it sounds too good to be true. You know, I think it is true, but nobody can believe that insulin resistance could be responsible for so many different conditions. You know, it's, it would almost be better if it was a little less comprehensive, just so you can convince people. Um, but, you know, there's more and more evidence coming out with, you know, psychiatric illness. I don't know if you've, uh, follow the work of Chris Palmer um, at all. He'd be a good guest if you haven't had him yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, he's really, you know, showing the relationships between metabolic illness and insulin resistance and psychiatric illness. And, you know, obviously the, the diabetes, cardiovascular stuff is, is well understood and, you know, it just goes on and on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you may be wondering why is it that a Bitcoin podcast is interested in this topic? It's a question we get often. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Bitcoin, um, but uh, let me give you a little bit of a, the kind of why I as an economist is, are, are, I'm interested in these topics and in a wide variety of topics. You know, the most common bit of feedback that I get is, hey, you're an economist, you know, stick to uh, numbers and charts rather than uh, telling people what to eat. But for me, I think what is uh, what is truly interesting and fascinating about uh, this topic and many other topics is, in my mind, how the financing and the funding of science has helped get scientists stuck down these many dead ends where uh, they just don't revise their hypotheses even after decades of um, reality assaulting them. So I first became familiar with this in economics because that's my field of expertise where I did my PhD. And so you look at uh, 
you know, the, the Keynesian consensus on what constitutes an economy. Just yesterday, you know, the Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, received uh, what is falsely called the Nobel Prize in economics. There's no Nobel Prize. It's the Swedish Central Bank Prize trying to hang on the coattails of Alfred Nobel to try and make their pseudoscience sound respectable. But in any case, this is presented as if it is, you know, a science and that everybody understands uh, how an economy works. And uh, people like Ben Bernanke are out there advancing our scientific knowledge and helping the world uh, get better at economics, which is complete garbage. Um, essentially, people like Ben Bernanke are just out there to repeat the conclusion that um, <laughs> all of the world's problems are fixed by handing more money to banks and letting central banks print money. That's the conclusion. Um, yeah, all, all of the scholarship that goes into arriving at the conclusion is completely um, interchangeable and irrelevant. It's just after the fact rationalization to arrive at the answer. It's, uh, inflationism is the thing that they want, and then scholarship is rewarded if it arrives at that conclusion. And so we've had decades of evidence that shows that inflation is not the solution to economic problems. Inflation is actually the cause to these economic problems. But it's impossible to get published in a uh, reputable journal in economics if you carry such controversial ideas as they like to call them. And I think the same thing is true in nutrition, you know, having, um, ha having seen how, yeah, it is possible for all of these supposed Nobel Prize winning scientists, all these top universities to be so completely wrong. That's what opened my mind and my eyes up to the possibility that, hey, maybe all of the nutritionists are wrong too. And then, you know, if you ignore what the nutritionists say and you go and you um, eat the unscientific diet of not stuffing your face with the highly toxic sugars every day, you find yourself feeling much better and healthier. Of course, you, you're surrounded by scientists telling you, oh, no, you know, <laughs> you're depriving your body of essential Twinkies and Pringles and Doritos and you can't do that to yourself. But, you know, if you, if, if you overcome the gaslighting, you can eventually it just becomes very obvious that, yeah, you're much better off living like this. Similarly, I think we see this in all these uh, fields, you know, and I think in cancer research is another one because uh, the, and, and, and the common theme in my mind is that funding for science is no longer a free market. There is no free market in the funding of science because in, in a free market, you know, uh, scientists would be free to propose any hypotheses. And if your hypothesis is correct, it ends up helping people and then people become better off. And then, you know, they pay you more money for, uh, you, they buy your book, they uh, subsidize your, they donate to your university, your university's graduates end up being more successful at treating people's illnesses. And so in a free market, the scientific theories that concord best with reality are the ones that would survive and would succeed. Whereas uh, in the current situation, we have that feedback loop from reality severed because the financing doesn't come from the real world. It doesn't matter if the nutritionists graduating from the School of Nutrition go out there and poison people because that's not how they're going to be financing the nutrition department. The financing for the nutrition department comes from up above. It comes from the money printer, basically. The government is what finances it. Uh, the government is what finances most university research. The government is what finances student loans. So you have to basically go along with the prevailing um, school of thought, with the prevailing dogma in order to get funding. And that's a mechanism that prevents any kind of serious revision 
of uh, science, you know, and and that's basically what prevents science from making any progress. Because the way that you would have progress is, all right, well, we have this stupid theory that says cancer is purely genetic. Well, if people go around and they tell people, oh, yep, you have cancer because it's your genes. Anybody who goes and gets, you know, goes to these doctors will not make any improvement. Whereas people who go to doctors and uh, who tell them, hey, you know, all right, maybe it is your genes, but let's try and get you off junk food for a couple of months and see what happens. And then people get better and then people improve or people start getting less uh, um, exposure, less incidence of cancer in these populations. These doctors would be successful. Their universities would be successful. And then eventually they would outcompete the other ones. We don't have that. We don't have that in um, in, in, in you know when it comes to heart disease, we don't have that when it comes to the cholesterol theory of heart disease. We don't have that when it comes to cancer, and so these kind of dead ends of science are what interest me the most. In that, it uh, you know people like you and people like Dr. Bickman and uh, people like Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, who was also a guest here a couple of weeks ago. You can marshal enormously compelling evidence for your theories. And yet, it's very difficult for universities to adopt that. Um, what, what has been your experience in that regard, in terms of just how hard it is to get uh, scientists to change their mind? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, a lot of what you said certainly resonates with, with what I know and in, in my experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think part of it is that, um, you know, there's a lot of brilliant people that are attracted to to medical school and to science but they you know are brilliant and, but at the same time not the sort of type of personalities that they would necessarily be prepared to uh you know contradict what they've been taught or or to challenge conventional thinking so you know in addition to the money i think the field attracts a certain type of thinking you know there are certainly plenty of exceptions but yeah, I remember talking to uh, Lewis Cantley. He is, you know, a brilliant scientist who really pieced together a lot of the the insulin science at the molecular level and showed, you know, how these pathways are driven by insulin that, that are related to cancer. And I, I said to him, you know, how can it be that that not everybody is talking about this given the significance? And he said that you know, the, the world that he's in is thought of as diabetes or endocrinology, and he's showing that it's connected to cancer, but there's a separate group of specialists that are focused on cancer that don't want to think about any of this. There's no incentive, you know, as you explained so eloquently for anybody to change, to go outside of the box. So, so no one, you know, makes these connections. I think that, that that's a big part of it. And, you know, the, the other part of it is that, you know, there's just no way to provide the level of proof that will, will satisfy, you know, some of these things the, the RCT, of course, you would like to have, but, you know, as I said earlier, you're, you're just not gonna, you know, give people sugar at high doses over 20 years it would be unethical. Uh, so it's sort of a, a dead end and you just have to be able to make that leap from, you know, just a massive amount of evidence from different directions, all pointing towards the same thing. But, you know, it's interesting backstory here, which, you know, might interest you is um, Gary Taubes, who, you know, I, I think is a, is a very brilliant scientific thinger, despite being a journalist and has influenced my thought. Uh, so he, he was on uh, an, econo uh, an econ podcast, I believe it's called Econ Talk years ago, and was talking about some of these issues. And I recall that uh, he and the host were 
making an analogy between macroeconomics and nutrition science. And uh, one of the listeners to that podcast was John Arnold. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, a billionaire in, in Houston, a gas trader. And he ended up uh, putting up a lot of money to uh, try to, you know, test some of these theories. And that turned into a bit of a debacle, but it was, it was interesting. You know, we can get into all that. Gary Taubes had the idea that he was going to get all of his en enemies to his scientific enemies to test these theories. And it, and it got really sticky and complicated, but um, you know, I, I do think these kind of conversations can make a big difference. You never know, you know, where the science is going to lead. And ultimately John, John Arnold funded some, some really important studies as well in terms of stuff David Ludwig at Harvard has done showing how low carb diets can actually increase the metabolic rate. So I think it's great that you're doing this and having these conversations. You never know who's listening and how it's going to change the science one day. Yeah, um, I think you know, in, in my book, The Fiat Standard, I uh, have a chapter on fiat science. And uh, one way I describe it is that uh, fiat science is all about who gets to determine the null hypothesis, and then they get to determine the burden of proof. So nobody's has carried out randomized control trials to prove that it is the genes that are causing uh, cancer. You know, you can't do that, but somehow it's still an accepted uh, uh, hypothesis. That's it. As well, it is genetic. You know, when you're when you're coming with government funding, you don't have to make any proof, and then the onus of proof is on the people that are opposing. And that's why, and and then of course the onus of the burden of proof just continues to get more and more ridiculous. And so these experiments are set up in ways that just can basically set them up for failure. Um, you know, you set up the experiment in any way you want, you get whatever result that you want. And it's just extremely, extremely biased. I haven't really followed the case of Gary Tobbs and that book, and I'm not entirely sure, uh, and John Arnold. I've, I've heard vaguely about it, but I'm not entirely sure how it went down. But I think that the, there's an enormous, enormous establishment that even one billionaire uh, coming in and trying to spend money is not is no match for 50 years of funding and scientists and PhDs who are basically being told, hey, let's go ahead and set up these experiments in a way that uh, if they show the result that this guy, that this journalist, you know, supposedly it's just massive insult, this journalist, Gary Tobbs, if he's right, then that would say that 50 years of PhDs are basically garbage and you people need to go back to high school and learn your biology from scratch. There's, there's not going to be a fair fight there. They're not going to agree to terms of experiments that are done in a way that it, going to arrive at these kind of results. And so you end up always coming up with these enormously contrived burdens of proof on people who want to present it. But of course, again, you know, this, this is why I'm a much bigger fan of bro science rather than uh, modern university science, because you have, on the other hand, you have people, you know, you have personal trainers on Instagram that have been training hundreds and thousands of people and they know, you know, you're fat. All right, well, cut down on the junk food and you'll get better. And it's, you know, you don't have to overcomplicate things. The results speak for themselves. So many people see the results and so many people benefit from it. You know, you have so many groups on Facebook of people from all over the world reporting results on um, improvements in things like this. And zero curiosity among scientists to explain it. You know, for instance, uh, I just recently got my blood work done after seven years of carnivore. Everybody's always telling me, you need to go get your uh, bloods checked. 
And according to modern science, you know, somebody who's eaten nothing but fatty meat for seven years should be, you know, dead or on the verge of death at this point. And yet my scores were just perfect. Like nobody would say that. You'd, one example like that should be enough to get all scientists to sit back and revisit what's going on. And I'm not the only one. There's thousands of uh, carnivores and low-carb dieters who eat a lot of very high fat and don't develop the things that we're told by nutritionists and doctors should be the consequence of high fat. A real science would take any of these as an extremely important and interesting observation. You can't just say, oh, it's just an N equals to one. No, it's not an N equals to one. You only need an N equal to one to falsify a theory. You know, If the sun rises from the West tomorrow, that deletes everything that we know about astronomy. We can't just say, oh, well, it's just one day. No, it's not just one day. It has to work if a theory is correct. If it's a law of science, it has to work every time. And you should be investigating that. Instead, uh, you know, you see, and I'm sure you come across this, you see the kind of very anti-scientific rationalization that people try and come up with to dismiss results which uh, which go against what they... Uh, what, what what they would expect and so it's oh well maybe your uh, you know your genes or maybe this or maybe that or it's, it's just an exception or you know it's not a randomized control trial uh, we need to get more data n equals to one doesn't matter it's uh, as long as you have the um, funding then you can get to call the shots and it doesn't matter you can come up with any kind of silly justification um, you know as long as you don't convince yourself then the other party is hopeless, which is, you know, why uh, Bitcoin, I think, is really uh, interesting in this, because um, the way that I think this is going to be fixed is not that we're going to be arguing with uh, Harvard professors to convince them uh, about this stuff. I think <laughs> the way Bitcoin is going to fix this is, you know, a world in which people can save their wealth in Bitcoin is a world in which inflation cannot be used to finance all the insane things that government finances, and that includes insane fiat science. And so uh, in a world in which people are protected from uh, theft through inflation, scientists would need to earn their uh, funding out on the open. And this is, this is where I think Bitcoin really offers the potential to fix science. It's just uh, we're not going to nicely argue with the people whose life and paycheck depends on repeating the dogma of their fields. We're just going to bankrupt them. And then they're going to need to either adjust the reality in order to eat or, you know, not eat. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm ashamed to say that I know, I know very little about Bitcoin, but uh, <laughs> I will start learning and start listening more. So I learn more. Okay, so uh, we skipped over Warburg, but I did want to discuss his life, which I think is very fascinating, and also the significance of his research at that time in Germany. So at that time in Weimar, Germany, and in Nazi Germany, cancer rates were uh, spiking, and they were increasing a lot. What do you think were the explanations that at that time uh, for why that was the case? What did Warburg uh, think? Yeah, so... You know, that, that's a big part of this story. And you know, we've already talked about it a little bit, but, you know, the cancer was rising in most Western countries, really anywhere where they had adopted this Western diet, including in Germany. So you have in the beginning of the 20th century and, and, and the late 19th century, these cancer rates going up and up and up. And, and German science is really 
at the top of the world. They're conquering almost, you know, all, they're conquering all these infectious diseases. Robert Koch has, you know, elucidated how microorganisms cause disease, but the cancer is driving them crazy. It's the one disease they can't make any progress against, despite all these brilliant scientific minds. So. I think the reason Warburg took on cancer is because it was the disease of the day. He wanted to make a world-changing discovery. He wanted, he had paintings on his wall of Pasteur and Paul Ehrlich and um, Robert Koch. And he thought, you know, the next person in this line will be the person who conquers cancer. And, you know, there were cancer exhibits going all over Germany and Germany was pouring more and more money into it. And, and really making very little progress. And then, um, you know, one of the fascinating things that took place, which, you know, I write about in my book is that, um, you know, the Nazis inherited this, this German cancer establishment and actually did make a little bit of progress in terms of, you know, funding uh, some sort of, you know, tests of, of prevention. They were the first to make the smoking cancer connection. So, you know, it can be mystifying for some people how, how Nazi science could have done anything good. And, you know, I really um, talk a lot in my book about the Stanford historian, Robert Proctor, who wrote this book called The Nazi War on Cancer, where, you know, he shows that, you know, the Nazis were so obsessed with the purity of the body and disease that, um, you know, cancer to them was sort of one more agent. They even thought, you know, it was potentially an infectious agent that, that they were going to conquer to, you know, kind of purify the Aryan body. So their attack on cancer actually got sort of rolled into this weird, you know, horrifying Nazi ideology. But um, partly because of that, they were so desperate to conquer cancer and they were so panicked about it. And Hitler himself was a hypochondriac and obsessed with cancer that, um, you know, they protected Warburg in the end and allowed him to continue his research. So, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, he was not only, you know, of Jewish heritage, but also more or less openly gay. And yet again and again, you know, the Nazis protected him, he provoked them, he would kick Nazi brown shirts out of his laboratory when they'd come to harass him. And, you know, it, it almost cost him his life in 1941, they brought him into Nazi headquarters and it looked like it might be the end, but they decided that, you know, so long as he focused on cancer, they were gonna let him go. And, um, you know, at a moment of the war when they weren't using gasoline, you know, for anything but the war effort, they stopped and built Warburg, a new institute in the countryside. And, and I think they really believed that, that he was going to cure cancer. And, and he was certainly saying that. So yeah, it's a pretty incredible story. He was the only out of all these Kaiser Wilhelm institutes that were full of Jewish scientists. He was the only one to make it in his position all the way to the end of the war. Yes, yeah, truly fascinating because pretty much all the other scientists had fled to the U.S. or Russia by that time. Uh, all, all the other Jewish scientists, I should say, uh, but he remained there, and um, it's it, it's it, it's it's interesting. And, and you and you say that the reason is that uh, Hitler, or part of the reason that Hitler was fascinated by this and obsessed with it, was because his own mother died from cancer. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really incredible story. His mother died of cancer, you know, right at the time when Hitler's life was sort of falling apart. You know, his father had already died. He had just been rejected from art school and was, you know, extremely depressed about that. And then he comes home and his mother's dying of cancer. She's actually being cared for by a Jewish doctor, Edward Bloch. And Hitler likes this doctor and they spend a lot of time together. The doctor's by her side every day. And uh, when the doctor and you know, the day his mother died, the doctor shows up in the morning, Hitler is sitting by her dead body. And the doctor later wrote that he, he's never seen a more 
depressed human being in his in his life, never seen a more forlorn expression. And you know, some historians have hypothesized that that maybe Hitler's, you know, <clears throat> his feeling towards Jews was somehow wrapped up in all of this, that he associated the doctor with the disease and his mother's death. But I don't think there's much evidence for that. In fact, he allowed this doctor to escape Austria. I, I do think that probably explains why Hitler was obsessed with cancer, but I don't think it explains all, all the Jewish ideology. But another interesting thing that you mentioned in the book was uh, Hitler was also obsessed with sugar, wasn't he? Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sometimes hesitant to even get into that because, you know, it doesn't, it's really kind of a side point. It's just... Uh, no, it's fine. Let's trigger sugar addicts more. We haven't triggered them enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, I, I just, it, it just so happens that, um, you know, Hitler was crazy. You know, he, he had a lot of weird obsessions, but it so happens that I don't know that I've ever heard of a human being who who consumed more sugar. I mean, he was the addict of all addicts. Uh, you know, he put like seven teaspoons of sugar in his tea and would just, you know, his chef, you know, recorded some memories of how he would just consume sugar all day. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it caused his his mental illness and his psychosis, but I'm sure, sure it didn't help things. And, uh, you know, I do I do like the irony that even as he was, you know, claiming that he was doing all, all these healthy things and purifying the Aryan body. He was meanwhile poisoning himself. I mean, by the time he killed himself, he was, he could barely walk. I mean, he was just an absolute wreck and he was taking, you know, he had been a drug addict as well. Uh, there's a book on that called, um, what's it called? You probably know the book, but, but in any case, what drugs was he into? Uh, well, he, he was taking, you know, basically, speed, uh, you know, that uh, his personal doctor had been giving him for many years and, and all sorts of uh, other medications. They were just injecting him all the time at the end, you know, in the last days in the bunker. Um, the only drug, you know, as the author of that book says, the only drug he has left, oh, it's called um, Blitzed. Uh, the only drug he had left was sugar. So he was just eating sugar constantly. And, you know, he, he would, I think he would have died very, very Soon after, uh, he was just in, in, in horrible shape had he not committed suicide at that point. Big cake fan, apparently. As dentist, there, you know, he of course had horrible teeth as well. So we've talked about the, the dental thing. His dentist despised Hitler, but not, not because he was Hitler, but because his teeth were so awful. <laughs> uh, but, but again, I don't, you know, I don't want to send the message that I think sugar caused Nazism. It can be blamed for a lot of things. And, and the Nazi actually did, you know, at the agricultural level, they actually did benefit from the sugar industry. But um, I don't think it's the best explanation for, for Hitler's psychosis. I'm going to run with it anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think also what's fascinating here is, uh, so two things. First of all, his fascination with cancer and his fascination with Warburg is just this kind of, it's it's the addict's guilt where on the one hand he needs to keep indulging in the drug but on the other hand he's really trying to help the scientist who he knows he suspects deep down inside suspects this guy clearly is onto something and that guy's onto the thing that you hate the most so he's trying to f effectively it's like the addicts wish that hey if we just let warburg do his thing then one day he's going to be able to figure out a way to uh, 
figure out a way to basically fix cancer that doesn't involve me having to quit my sugars, I think is, is one way of looking at it. Would you agree? I mean, I, you know, I, I should say that, you know, the, I think everything you say may be circling around the truth, but the evidence, you know, it gets a little murky. You know, what, what happens is Hitler, you know, well, Warburg is brought in June 21st, 1941. Warburg is brought into Nazi headquarters. They, he's been evicted from his institute. And, you know, I did a lot of research on this day, but what really blew me away is that, you know, only later after I started research, I realized that June 21st, 1941 is not just any day in Nazi history. It's only hours before Operation Barbarossa when the Nazis, you know, risk everything to go into the Soviet Union. So this all happens at the most critical moment. Warburg's brought into Nazi headquarters. We know that Hitler is in the building and that on that day, uh, I found it in Himmler's diary, he has a meeting about Warburg that day. And then Warburg is asked to meet with um, this guy who is essentially the head of Hitler's personal chancellery and, and he passes on the message. So, and then later that night, I have from Goebbels' diary, Hitler and Goebbels are talking about cancer research. So there's all these different points of evidence pointing towards Hitler's direct involvement, but there's not like this smoking gun. But the other really fascinating part of this story is that Hitler, you know, Warburg, one way for somebody like Warburg to survive in Nazi Germany was to have his status, you know, quote unquote, upgraded. Uh, he was considered half Jewish, but if he had been, you know, again, quote unquote, upgraded to a quarter Jewish, then he would be, you know, more likely to survive in Nazi Germany. So Warburg puts in this application and Hitler would personally review these applications in the middle of the war effort. You know, this is what he's doing. He's pouring over, you know, these applications that have different pictures and he's trying to figure out if this person has a Jewish nose or not. And, and it's just the craziest stuff. So I know that Warburg's application had to have passed his desk because he approved these things, but I can't say exactly what Hitler thought about Warburg, despite okay. looking for that evidence. Yeah, and said he was obsessed with cancer. Certainly, there's an amazing amount of evidence there. Yeah, and also uh, we do know that Hitler was. Um, I mean, he may not have been a vegetarian, but he thought vegetarianism was the way forward uh, for humanity. Right? Yeah, he and Himmler were both, you know, obsessed with vegetarian diets and getting meat out of you know the Nazi diet, and um, you know he himself, you know, was into organic fruits and vegetables that he would have, you know, flown to him when he was in his various bunkers and whatnot. So yeah, he, he, uh, he tended to get everything wrong, <laughs> including nutrition. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, this, this is not, uh, considered, you know, you could taint anything by any kind of shred of guilt of association to Hitler, except this one, uh, that somehow the thing that he ate all day, every day, uh, the sugar and the lack of meat is somehow completely unrelated to all of the insane things that he did. But um, I think they're highly related because from my experience and from the experience of many people that I see, I find the more meat you eat, the less sugar you crave. This is, I think, a very, very important Probably part of the part of the reason why meat is so vilified, I think this is something that f uh, food marketing has figured out uh, a long time ago. You know, um, food scientists have been running data on how to get people to eat more of their highly addictive crap for a very long time, and I think the reason that meat is vilified is that if you eat a lot of meat, you don't crave a lot of sugary stuff. 
And on the other hand, if you don't eat meat, and this is kind of what a lot of people say is, oh, well, I cut down on meat and I feel better. Well, no, you cut down on meat and then you're malnourished. And then because you're malnourished, you're constantly hungry. And then you fix that by engaging in essentially a very uh, elaborate sugar habit. And so you feel better because you're basically high on sugar all the time. And uh, in, in the short run, this feels great. You know, I mean, if you replace uh, nutrition with drugs, uh, that, that's a great recipe for a fun weekend, but it's not going to be very sustainable in the long run. It's going to cause a lot of damage. So, you know, I'm now obviously not saying this is the cause, but I don't think uh, this is the cause for what he did. But I think it's uh, it's arguably, and, and, and it doesn't obviously, uh, I, I think, uh, cause his ideologies and all his insane and criminal ideas. But I think... Uh, it's, uh, you know, this kind of malnutrition is not something that can just be forgotten. I think uh, I'd urge somebody to try to go three months on a carnivore diet and then to go three months on sugar and uh, lots of sugar and cake and, you know, do the Hitler diet of very little meat and a lot of sugar and cake and then see how you change as a human being. And I, I dare you to then tell me that, no, it's, uh, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, well, I mean, I think... I think at the very least, you could say that, you know, he was someone who had erratic mood swings and that, you know, these, you know, insane sugar habit could not, could not have helped, you know, that's in a, in a situation like that, it would just contribute to, to even more erratic mood swings. But, um, you know, another interesting thing that, that, that relates to what you're saying is, you know, you talked about uh, how some people eat less meat and, and say they're doing better. But, you know, what I've found is that, um, you know, some people go to a vegan diet and they say that they've never done better. But when they go to these vegan diets, they're often cutting out refined carbs and sugar at the same time. So I'm thinking, OK, yeah, yeah, uh, of course, of course, you're doing better if you're cutting out all the sugar you're eating. Yeah, this is a very common misconception people have, which is, you know, they move to the vegan diet at the same time where they will quit, uh, say, so for them is, all right, I'm going to quit McDonald's. You know, they used to eat McDonald's five times a week and they'd have that big giant meal of uh, seed oil fried uh, fries and uh, the Pepsi and the bun and the sugary uh, uh, treats. Yeah, they quit all of that in their mind. You know, that's part of what it is to go vegan because there's that tiny little bun in the middle of the big giant meal or the little uh, chicken McNuggets. And then they think, all right, well, I, because I quit that bun, that's where uh, that's why my health improved. Um, but really, the reason is you've replaced all of the sugary junk and the highly processed crap that comes with that bun with, uh, um, the, uh, with what is usually, you know, far less harmful stuff, like uh, basically organic, grown vegetables and fruits fresh i mean obviously that's much better than eating highly processed stuff but i personally uh will eat a lot of these uh burger patties from uh, fast food restaurants and i'll subsist on them you know and when i'm traveling it's my go-to i just stop at uh, mcdonald's or burger king and i'll have six seven eight of these patties and i'm set for the for the day you know, i think it's uh, it's great it's just pure beef and it's uh, delicious and it's quick and it's cheap and it's um, it, it's great. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think if you quit all of the rest of the stuff that comes with the junk food uh, and kept the patties, you'd do even better than if you just uh, have the fruits and veggies. You know, I, had a, I had a friend who wanted to start a keto fast food restaurant and I pointed out that, you know, they are already keto if you just, you just throw out the buns and the fries and the drinks. 
<laughs> yeah, it's true. And it's it's extremely cheap and it's everywhere. It's amazing. I mean, it's uh, anywhere you go, there's one of these places and you can just have uh, all of the meat that you want. So then uh, what happens to Warburg after the war? Tell us more about his uh, story. Yeah, so so after the war, you know, unfortunately, it was sort of a, a decline for, for Warburg. You know, he had been, you know, somewhat traumatized, understandably, about his experience in Nazi Germany. And he was, you know, a difficult somewhat paranoid personality already. So after the war, he becomes a little bit of a, a pariah. The, um, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation had supported him. You know, that was another incredible thing. The Rockefeller Foundation built an institute for him in Germany. But after the war, you know, people were a little suspicious of how he survived. Did he, you know, somehow collaborate with the Nazis. So he didn't, and he didn't deserve that suspicion, but people sort of washed their hands from him. But but he didn't help his own case because he he was making more and more extreme statements about cancer, you know, saying his the thing that he discovered, this Warburg effect, was the only thing that anybody needed to know. Everything else was garbage, you know. So, you know, he made it easy for people to knock down his arguments. And, and a lot of it came down to this one scientific question. Warburg was saying that in a true cancer, there's no more respiration. The cells are no longer breathing oxygen. And people were able to refute that and say, look, you know, in some of these cancers, the respiration is continuing. They agreed with him that the fermentation, the backup engine, the aerobic glycolysis was taking place, but they said Warburg was still wrong because the respiration. So if he had just made less extreme statements, it, it would have really helped a lot, but he made the most extreme statements and then people started to discredit him and then, um, you know, in the meantime, you have, you know, as we've already talked about, the rise of the genetic hypothesis. And then once that took hold, then everything Warburg, you know, believed about metabolism and the centrality of metabolism to cancer uh, sort of went into the background. And, you know, Warburg dies in 1970. And, you know, by the mid 80s, you know, people have almost like completely forgotten about his thinking, you know, the ideas that, you um, cancer is an entirely genetic disease. And the stuff that Warburg studied is, you know, kind of the old school biochemistry, the old school nutrition, nutrition. It has nothing to do with the exciting new molecular biology. And, you know, people are throwing out their Warburg manometers, these devices that they use to measure respiration and the posters of metabolic pathways are coming off the walls being replaced with, you know, these new, the, you know, molecular biology, protein signaling pathways. Um, and so it's, it's really, you know, for a few decades, just, just wiped off, you know, the scientific map, you know, kind of all the stuff that we've talked about, but, you know, there are a number of reasons it came back, but, you know, one of them, you know, is kind of amazing is that, you know, this new tests arise, the PET scan, which, you know, is a key diagnostic tool to this day, which diagnoses cancer, you know, just by looking at where, where in the body extra glucose is being taken up. And that's a sign that, you know, this Warburg metabolism is going on. So even as Warburg was being sort of, you know, removed from the discussion, this central point about the metabolism of cancer was, you know, being introduced to every cancer institute, this PET scan. And then um, in the late nineties, you, you start to have the beginnings of, of this real synthesis where people are able, you know, these geneticists who, are trying to figure out what takes place inside the cancer cell are, are quite surprised to find all these old enzymes from Warburg's days are suddenly a part of these networks that they've been studying. So they, they traced, you know, they kind of left Warburg behind, then traced 
the pathway through the cell and it led them right back to the enzymes that control the way a cell eats. Um, and once once they got there, you know, it suddenly made so much sense. You know, the, the analogy used by Chi Van Dang, one of these scientists is that cancer is a building project and you can't organize and you know create a building project if you have no control, if you're not integrating the fuel supply into this. It can't just be that the fuel randomly shows up <laughs> So uh, I think, you know, the evidence looks like the, the causation was, was largely backwards in a sense. It's, you know, you have these first early stage of the process where a cell gains the ability to overconsume nutrients and that sort of awakens this, uh, oh, I've got all this extra fuel coming in, you know, maybe, maybe I can start to, to build new things. It, it's, you know, it sort of awakens the demon inside. And, and that's what a lot of scientists now think that, that the origins of cancer are. It's, this extra fuel coming in and, and a cell gaining the ability, not just to use it for more energy, but to actually create the building blocks of daughter cells and allowing cancer cells to, to divide and build because they have the, the fuel to do it. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously this isn't my field of expertise and I don't claim to have all the answers for it. I, I think it would just, it, it's mind boggling that more people aren't researching that. This is what I find really valuable about your work. And what I find really puzzling about, um, you know, all the other dead uh, dead ends on down which uh, cancer research will go because, uh, and, and there is of course another aspect to this, which is that junk food industry is obviously not going to be excited about results like this. They're highly unlikely to be financing scientists to go around and dig about, dig and find out how bad their food really is for cancer. They'd much rather pursue other avenues of research. Well, you know, maybe it's genetics. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's uh, all, all these, you know, tiny little particulates. Maybe it's microplastics or something like that. I think, you know, maybe there is something like that. All the other explanations, as long as uh, people aren't um, digging into this one very, very, very obvious giant elephant in the room. But, but you know, but here's the interesting thing. What, you know, what I just talked about in terms of, you know, tracing the, cancer to these Warburg enzymes. Like a lot of scientists are working on that part of the problem. They are interested in that. What they're not willing to do, you know, with, with some very notable exceptions is take the logic one step further. Like if this, you know, if this one particular pathway, this is called the PI3K pathway, if it can be excited by a mutation, you know, then that's not controversial. They're very interested in studying that. But what if that same pathway could be excited and be activated all the time because you're eating the wrong diet and insulin is triggering it all the time. Now that takes the logic one step further back to diet. And that's where the interest drops off with some notable exceptions. You know, Lewis Cantley, who has pioneered all this stuff is actually very active in, in talking about sugar. So I think we have to credit some of these scientists, but to me, it's just the surprising leap. You know, if you, you know, they see the problem and they see, oh, well, we can, you know, the orientation is immediately, okay, let's create a drug that targets that, but refusing to take the next step is, okay, but what if diet could also target that? Yeah, and I mean, what's really mind-boggling about this is that, like, it's, all right, sure, junkies love their drugs, but it's really not that difficult to cut out sugar. It's a lot easier than chemotherapy. Um, obviously, it's nowhere near as profitable. That's the thing. Like, there's a lot of money, of, there's a lot more money to be made um, from feeding you poison and then <laughs> treating you with chemotherapy than from making you avoid the poison and not giving you chemotherapy. So this is, this is I think, the sad part of the story. Yeah, it does. You know, it, it's sort of sad that it's come to this, but it, it does raise the question, I think, is, 
is it possible that that we will have the drugs that that will restore metabolic health even in the face of massive sugar consumption uh, it seems seems possible that that we might get there and that might be the, the only way out uh, you know there are uh, new drugs coming along i mean it, it's a shame but um you know whatever restores it i'll, I'll take you know one drug and a lot of people have had success with is metformin. You know, they're all going to turn out to be diabetes drugs, of course. You know, there's the evidence isn't clear cut, but, um, you know, just by restoring glucose metabolism and lowering insulin levels, metformin may already be, a, you know, extremely valuable cancer drug. Yeah, but then again, you know, um, the problem with these is even if it is effective, well, if you're addicted to sugar, then all that the effectiveness does is that it's going to allow you to indulge more in your addiction. So um, it's going to, protect you and let you uh, indulge more. And like, there's there's no limit to how much uh, sugary addictive junk you can keep eating. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying in theory, you could imagine that, you know, maybe a new drug that that blocks the, the increase, you know, that prevents fructose from causing the buildup of fat in the organs. You could imagine a world in which one could eat all the sugar and, and not just cause insulin resistance, but I'm, I'm not optimistic that we're gonna, get to yeah. that anytime soon. And I don't think it's the, the best way we should be thinking about it, but yeah, it may be our last hope. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that I like to think of it is it's similar to saying, um, well, you know, we need to find a way to uh, invent a laptop that can uh, withstand being thrown from the 20th story window. And uh, you know, maybe we'll invent some laptop like that, but um, there's a much better way, which is just don't throw your laptop off the 20th floor. Don't throw your laptops out of windows in general. I'll just, you know, just to play devil's advocate, you know, just because I've, I've talked with doctors about this issue and, and what they, you know, I sometimes make these arguments to them and they say like, okay, everything you're saying is true, but you don't understand what I'm up against. You know, like you're telling me not this person has like three Cinnabon for breakfast. Like if I could get this person to only eat one Cinnabon, that would be like a great victory. Like they, they say like, you know, I just have no appreciation for how, how, how far gone, you know, it, or how, how difficult it is to get some of these patients off their diet. So, you know, I'm sympathetic to that, but it doesn't mean we should throw up our hands. I'm, I'm not very sympathetic to that because these same doctors are the same ones that tell you that you should be eating the standard American balanced diet. You know, they're telling you that in order for you to remain healthy, you need to get six to 11 portions of grains every day. You need to eat five fruits and vegetables every day. And all of that is practically zero nutrition. You know, it's, it, 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 you can round all the nutrients in all of that into basically zero. And then they tell you to eat a little bit of protein, which can be meat or, you know, industrial grains, uh, soy and beans and stuff. And they make no distinction between the two. So like if you give people this dietary advice, you're setting them up to get to the place where they're going to be starving every day and they're going to need sugar all the time to keep them able to function. And they're going to end up having three cinnamons for breakfast. You know, this is, this is a recipe for that. You're prescribing malnutrition and then the natural reaction to that malnutrition is sugar addiction. So I, I, I have very little sympathy to these doctors because those doctors themselves, you know, they'll, if you told them, all right, so what should this patient be eating? It's not very different from uh, three cinnamons in the morning. It's, yeah, have some uh, whole grain cereal in the morning with low skim, uh, with skim milk, which is, you know, uh, maybe not as bad as three cinnamons, but it's not much better. If those doctors were telling people to just eat meat and avoid the sugar and avoid the junk and avoid the grains, it would be very different. And I think the, the really 
the, the really inexcusable thing for me is that uh, doctors think of their job as being to win popularity contests. You know, they're, they're out there to tell people what they want to hear. That's not your job. You know, let leave that to the kid's mom to try and figure out, you know, how to square your strict and harsh recommendations with what the kids want. But you should be the, the you should be the voice of conscience in this. I think I mean, I, I've never heard of a doctor who does this, but I think, you know, if in a sane world, I think a 10 year old uh, is overweight, they go to see their doctor. I think the doctor should sit them down and show them pictures of the diabetic 25, 35, 40 year olds having their legs amputated because of diabetes, um, showing them how they're going to become overweight. I think that, you know, you should be showing them these things in an extremely scary, extremely shocking, jarring way and just tell them, hey, yeah, if you want to keep having this garbage for breakfast, this is where you're going to end up. I'm going to have to amputate your leg one day. I think that's what doctors should be doing. But, you know, that's completely unthinkable for most doctors. They're out there basically coddling people and telling them, hey, um, yeah, you know, um, just go and have these six to 11 portions of grains and have uh, uh, maybe, you know, have less of this and less of that. And here's a medicine for you to help you. And here's, oh, and of course, here's your ADHD. You know, here's here's some speed for you to, to, to help you get over the sugar addiction that you're with. You know, it's zero interest in tackling the causes. Why not? You know, why shouldn't the doctor's office be a place to terrify unhealthy kids? Why shouldn't the unhealthy kid go back from the doctor's office crying, thinking, oh my God, they're going to cut my legs off? I think a lot of 10-year-olds would have benefited enormously from that. They, you know, a lot of the very unhealthy 40-year-olds today would be a lot happier today, living much more fulfilling lives, much healthier lives, less sick, in much better shape, if they'd gone through the just one day like that when they were 10 years old, before they hit puberty. You know, kind of related to that, you know, I said before, I could have written largely the same book about, you know, diabetes or, you know, cardiovascular disease or other diseases. And, you know, one of the reasons I thought it would be a good idea to focus on cancer is that, you know, I think cancer is scarier than, than the other diseases, that if people could see this connection between insulin resistance and cancer it would cause them to change their diet in a way that seeing the connection between, I mean, diabetes should be scary, but I think, you know, it's not scary in, in the same way for a lot of people. So I think for that reason, you know, the cancer messaging, you know, is really in, important. You know, the other, the other complicating factor that's come up, and, you know, I've talked about this with my wife, I have daughters, is she's sometimes you know, concerned that um, if I talk about diet and eating too much, that it could backfire, that the kids will rebel against it or it could cause eating disorders. So it, it, it gets hard, but, you know, I, I tend to agree with you that the best thing we can do is make sugar seem as scary as possible. Yeah, I, I, I get that a lot. People always tell me, well, you know, um, if you make this such an issue for your kids, they're going to rebel. Maybe, but I also think, I mean, insulin resistance is like, uh, is not something that happens overnight. You know, every time you get sugar, you're getting one step closer to insulin resistance. And so as long as they're under my roof, um, you know, I'm not going to uh, actively build their insulin resistance uh, in order to avoid potential kind of rebellion that they'll have one day. And I think the other thing that people miss from this is that most of the people who say this don't realize the importance of proper nutrition and don't realize the fact that uh, 
the reason people get addicted to sugar is because they're not eating enough meat. They're not getting real nutrition. And so if you're getting enough nutrition, then all right, you'll still maybe, you know, you'll rebel and you'll want to get more sugar. Um, and, you know, when you're no longer living under your parents' house, you're going to, that that's going to be your teenage rebellion. But if you spent all of your youth eating meat and you're well-nourished and you can handle meat and you're well used to it and you continue to eat meat properly, then there's only so much sugar addiction that you can develop, I think. Yeah, At least I hope so. makes sense. I kind of think of the lowest of the low-hanging fruit is sugary drinks. So, you know, that's that's where I, I often try to really fight hard with my kids. Like, you know, I go to war on that and then I I sometimes lose the war on, on other things. But it's just so, even if you try to keep it out of your house, like every time they go to a friend's house, every time they go to a party, it's just sugar everywhere. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, that's the really bad thing about it. It's just so normalized as a part of childhood. And what really annoys me about it is that it's just, it, it, it's the cheapest, easiest way to do parenting. You know, you can just buy your child's happiness and satisfaction and silence and cooperation um, by just giving them candy. And it's just, it's such a high time preference uh, thing to do because you're trading their future health for your uh, ease of, uh, you know, for your peace of mind today. You know, you don't want to go and do an activity with them. You don't want to keep them busy. You don't want to read a book with them. You don't want to um, talk to them about something interesting. So just give them a piece of candy and uh, they'll, uh, you know, they'll leave you alone. And then you can, then you can go back to your important things like watching Netflix or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm ashamed of this, but when my, my son was little, it was before I'd figured all this stuff out, I would, you know, he'd like use the potty, whatever, you know, the rewards were M&M's, you know, it's just how we thought about everything. And, you know, looking back, you know, it's like such, such bad training. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a massive problem. Brian here is asking, what are your thoughts on fasting? Do you think fasting helps with insulin resistance? Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't think I've seen quite enough evidence on fasting, but the general principle, you know, seems to make sense to me. And it's certainly, you know, I think that, you know, the most important thing is to get the insulin down. So if you're losing weight, if you're overweight and you're losing weight and fasting and it's working for you, you know, unless it's a really extreme fast in which you need a doctor's supervision, then that's something else. But fasting is working for you and you're losing weight, you know, I, I think it's you know, a, a good thing. And, you know, I think the evidence certainly points in that direction from, you know, animal studies and from short-term studies. So, you know, I, I've tried in, in recent years to, you know, cut out breakfast after seeing that. But, um, you know, if you're keeping your insulin down with a very low-carb diet, then it's probably less important. You know, you could probably do one or the other and do well. Yeah, I'm I'm still uh, I'm still not entirely convinced that the benefits will um, be significant if you're not getting insulin spikes from sugary food. Jury's still out as far as I'm concerned. I think it there might well be a case that you're better off just eating more meat and making sure that you get nutrition from meat because once you switch to an all meat diet, you know that the entire idea of eating being bad for you and eating making you sick and eating making you fat goes away. Eating is nutrition, it's nourishment. You're building your body by uh, putting the food that you need in it. So it's 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 not as compelling um, an idea to try and to quit the food that is not harmful. Yeah, and you'll you'll find you know if you're eating a big meal you know of red meat as you said you, you'll you'll fast naturally the next day because you'll just 
feel so full. Yeah, exactly. I always tell people, you know, if you if you if you're if you're hungry less than 12 hours after you ate, then you didn't eat enough meat. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us. This has been extremely interesting and fascinating. It's a, it's a, your book is a wonderful book, and I highly recommend people pick it up. And uh, please keep uh, pounding this drum. Uh, it may seem lonely at some points, but uh, I promise you a lot of us are paying attention. And uh, I promise you a lot of Bitcoiners are going to be uh, uh, interested in this. And one day, who knows, you know, maybe Bitcoin will fix this. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good day. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye.